0: I think the fact that we don't have vaccine manufacturing capabilities that can go to scale is a huge problem both for our country and for Africa, and a huge missed opportunity for revenue, for development, and for R&D and innovation in that sector.
1: From fighting HIV AIDS denialism in the 90s to leading the battle against COVID-19, Professor Glenda Gray, the first female head of the South African Medical Research Council, is no stranger to speaking truth to power. I'm Julia Taylor, the National Medical Head at Investec Private Bank, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Investec Focus Talks, a series of candid conversations with leaders, innovators, and change makers. In this Focus Talk podcast, I'm privileged to be joined by Professor Glenda Gray, the co-lead investigator of the South African Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine trial, a world-leading perinatal HIV researcher and a woman on a mission to ensure universal access to healthcare. Welcome Prof and thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you and good morning.
1: This week marks the first anniversary of South Africa's initial lockdown. Described as one of the strictest in the world, what are your reflections looking back on the past year, um, our response to the pandemic and some of your highs and lows?
0: So I think this year has been an incredibly difficult year at a global level. And so we weren't sure what was going to happen um, at a global level or at a local level. And um, when we went into lockdown, I think we had this belief that uh, we, would, we would be able to, to control the, the virus, stop the transmission and get back to our normal life, which I think was probably, um, on retrospect, pretty naive. I do think that the, the initial lockdowns went on for too long and was too too harsh. I, I don't think the country was ready to deliver the social services that was required to keep vulnerable people at home and to um, support the, the, the people that needed food and relief of, of poverty relief. There have been a lot of ramifications um, of the lockdown, and I think it's a combination of the whole idea was to preserve lives and to try and balance lives and livelihoods. And so despite the lockdowns, uh, we've had a very harsh epidemic. Uh, lots of South Africans, as we speak, um, over 1.5 million people in South Africa have had COVID. The official deaths are around 52, 53,000. And there are excess deaths in this whole period is um, north of 143,000. And so we've had a lot of a lot of more mortality, a lot of morbidity. We've had um, our health system stretch to the to the limit on the verge of running out of oxygen and healthcare workers completely burnt out with inadequate uh, PPE protection. When you look back, I'm not too sure whether we can really judge whether we did anything right or wrong. I think we have to accept that uh, we did uh, the best that we we could with the available evidence. And maybe the only reflection is from our part is that um, one needs to move in and out of, of lockdown periods much more faster and more nimbly and then we have done, and so you don't have to to wait for for two weeks before you see when you, you haven't when you have an inkling that the 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 infections are coming down is to rather move faster into opening up the economy and to try and preserve jobs at the same time.
1: And, and that makes sense. And and I mean on that that point you raise around uh, the lockdowns and you know moving into them quicker and out of them quicker. There is talk of a third wave. There is talk of a stricter uh, level of lockdown over Easter. Do you think that's that's likely? Do you think we, we're likely to go into another level of lockdown or a, a stricter level of lockdown now? And is the third wave inevitable?
0: I think the third wave is inevitable. As we go into winter months, uh, people start to um, crowd in, inside houses. Um, there's less ventilation. People start to do things indoors. And whenever you're in poorly ventilated places where there are lots of crowds, then you're more likely to increase transmission. And so I do think we we expect to see a third wave in winter. If we look at Europe, they went through a third wave in in their winter months. And so we had a very harsh second wave. And I think everyone is bracing themselves for a, a third wave that may be as harsh as our second wave. So in terms of the lockdown and what we should be doing over Easter, obviously Easter or any holiday period represents a high risk period for transmission. And curtailing movement, or or implementing curfew, or restricting crowds, is a good way to try and mitigate uh, transmission that may occur at this, at this period of time.
1: And and in terms of our healthcare system, you spoke of obviously in your in your previous comments around uh, you know a healthcare sector being ready for for the initial COVID 19 pandemic when it started and some of the lack of PPE etc. What's our position now? And um, should we go into a third wave? Are we bit more
0: prepared? Well I think we've been trying to rush to vaccinate healthcare workers before the end of April in a way to try and um, protect them uh, before the third wave and so um, hopefully by the end of April there will be the official rollout of the vaccine program and we can get more healthcare workers uh, vaccinated. We've tried to get healthcare workers who who are patient-facing who are in the front line of COVID infections and we have to manage people who have got COVID. So we've tried to get to those healthcare workers to protect them before the, the next wave and hopefully the rest of the healthcare workers can follow suit. In terms of PPE, I think that the country has got smarter and the quality of PPE has improved as well as the, 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 quali- the quantity, quality and quantity. In terms of um, oxygen, hopefully we've learned from the, the second wave and our oxygen supplies will, will keep us going. And in terms of our health our health systems, hopefully we become used to working in a COVID um, surge and that we can try and keep both non-COVID and both COVID uh, health uh, programs working. In the first wave and in the first part of the lockdown, people were too scared to go to hospital and um, we, we stopped diagnosing TB, we stopped managing HIV properly and women who were pregnant were too scared to go for antenatal care. Um, Mm -hmm. We also know that immunisation rates in South Africa went down because parents also didn't want to take their children to to be immunised. And so there was a lot of uh, ramifications of the lockdown on other non-COVID-related medical events, uh, such as TB, HIV and antenatal care. And we have to try and keep the health system open so that we can attend to... To all the other ailments in our country, but at the same time be ready and nimble to, to support the, the, the uh, managing COVID infections in the hospital.
1: Yeah, it's
0: a balancing act, I'm sure.
1: You, you speak about the, the vaccines and the vaccine for vaccines for the South African healthcare workers. You and your team were instrumental in securing the initial doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for, for South Africa. And so far in its initial vaccination phase, South Africa's vaccinated just over one in 10 of the 1.2 million frontline healthcare workers. Um, And I know we're targeting around 16 million people in the second stage um, due to begin in April. In your opinion, are we on track? Um, Will we have enough vaccines? How will we get them to the far-flung corners of South Africa? And and do you feel there's a clear plan um, for the vaccine rollout?
0: Well, I think I'll start off with the the Sasanqui study that we're doing, which we give half a million healthcare workers the vaccine. So demand has always outstripped supply, and that's always been uh, the problem both in South Africa and at a global level. If you have a look at what's going on um, um, everywhere in the world, people are are desperate for vaccination, and and we see the same thing in South Africa. So we only have half a million vaccines at the moment, and we see a huge demand. The vaccines are coming in in small amounts, and so before the next batch comes in. They've been stepped up by the, by the health system. So this gives us an indication um, that there is huge demand, which is a good thing, because you don't want vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Um, so the important thing is, is that the, the demand is good. And now, I, uh, and now as we move into the vaccine rollout, we have to make sure that the fire happens and that we don't run out of vaccines in any part of the program. And at this moment in time, at a global level, mm. in the next two or three months, there, there are global shortages of vaccine, we've already seen the EU trying to uh, impose restrictions on the movement of vaccines out of out of the Euro- European Union. We also saw that in India um, with the Serum Institute, there were talks of nationalising the vaccine um, in India and obviously um, common sense prevailed and hopefully common sense will prevail in, in Europe to make sure that vaccines can flow to areas of the world where we need it. Uh, South Africa is the country in Africa that has been the most affected by the COVID epidemic. And so we should emphasize access to um, two parts of Africa that have had the greatest burden. And so obviously South Africa should be a beneficiary of access and access much quicker than than other countries that have not had such a um, bad epidemic. And so um, I think what we're going to be seeing is that in the next three or four months, there is going to be a a global dash uh, for vaccines. And as soon as manufacturing ramps up and as soon as supplies start to come on board we can find ourselves in a much better um, steady state and supplies will be will be uh, continuous and uh, there won't be such a mad dash hopefully for vaccines. I do believe that South Africa is well equipped to roll out the vaccine, just my limited experience with this half a million program you know we've seen um, a, a health system that can rise to the occasion and also obviously the public and private sector critical uh, for for doing these vaccine programs, what we have to do when we roll out the vaccine is to be innovative. If we have a look at some of the the innovations from overseas, big stadium, stadia, um, uh, church halls, schools, um, and having mass vaccination events um, will be the way to really um, make sure we can we can re- get to all parts of the of the country. And I would recommend that in in rural places and more remote places, you do have. Um, mass vaccination events where, at, in one uh, village or in one town, um, you set up a, a program which allows people to to commute into the centre to to be vaccinated. In areas where people are poor and can't get to these centres, obviously you're going to have to have a mobile a vaccine unit. And already we're looking at these mobile units that can house a a, a, a fridge, a nurse, a driver, and um, and can basically go from village to village to vaccinate people in a way that uh, allows access. So we're going to have to think outside the box, we're going to have to use um, a lot of innovation that's non-medical in terms of logistics, and we're going to have to make sure that the medical system is well-equipped to be adaptable. Already we're seeing a a global shortage of syringes and needles, and so um, we have to make sure that in our country that we also have enough supply it would be terrible to have all the vials, all the vaccines in the country and no syringes and needles. And so already we've seen the prices of needles and syringes going up and a dash at a global level for, for syringes. And so those are the kind of things that are going to maybe uh, hamper our rollout. I do believe that the private sector has a, a, a role to play and also logistics and the management of, of supply chain management, stock management and and also quality assurance. We have to make sure that Uh, we're drawing up the right amount of vaccine, the right dose, and we're administering it in in the correct way. And so all of that also requires a a lot of oversight, which is very possible in in our country.
1: Okay, and speak about obviously the the private sector and the role the private sector can play in partnership with with the public sector um, and around, specifically you you named around sort of logistical and
0: distribution elements of it. What about uh, procurement? I think the procurement issue is, is always going to be a tricky issue. Um, there's a, an indemnification that countries have to give a no-fault compensation for, for the vaccines because obviously these are new vaccines and we don't know what the long-term side effects are. And so in terms of procurement, I guess who's ever willing to, to support the indemnification and, the, and the, the funds to support something like that uh, sh- should be uh, taken into consideration. So there are kind of a couple of barriers for, for um, individual or, or private procurement. One is the indemnification. Two is the kind of volumes that, you, that one needs to purchase to be taken seriously. And three is the issue of, of quality. We have to make sure that uh, the vaccines that are coming into our country are not, are not contraband or not counterfeit. And um, we have to make sure that they are software approved and that there's data and information that these vaccines work in our country with our variant. And so I do think that uh, collective uh, bargaining, that the, the public and private sector should be should be going to the manufacturers together with their um, their money, and saying okay, um, here's our money, and you know how much vaccine can give us, and uh, and work in a way that harmonizes the distribution. We also want to ensure equity. We don't want to be in a situation where um, we, we procure vaccines in the private sector um, at the um, Peril of people who also need it, who are poor and who also have comorbidities and who are also vulnerable to, to COVID. And so whatever whatever me- mechanism we use, there has to be equity um, built in. We have to be able to access rural areas of the country. And uh, we have to make sure that there's, these vaccines are good quality vaccines and that they work in our in our, in our country. We don't want um, vaccines that don't work in the country. And we want to make sure that we don't get um, vaccines that are, are counterfeit.
1: When when do you think that we'll see South Africa's own vaccine production capability ramp up? I mean, you speak about a global shortage and obviously as bringing the vaccines into South Africa and the the 500,000 that we secured from Johnson & Johnson. I mean, Aspen is going going to be producing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, We've also seen that BioVac has announced a local manufacturing partnership with the US-based immune therapy firm Immunity Bio to offer the vaccine in the form of oral tablet, and What are your thoughts on, on these developments and the impact it can have in South Africa?
0: I think they're critical. I think the fact that we don't have vaccine manufacturing capabilities that can go to scale is a huge problem both for our country and for Africa and a huge missed opportunity for revenue, for development and for R&D and innovation in that sector. You know, We should have a, a serum institute that, like India has and we should aspire to that. So I do believe Aspen's going to be doing the fill and finish. They're already busy with their quality assurance and very soon um, millions of of vials of vaccine are going to roll off their production line. and hopefully some of them will be also for local use and not all to be exported elsewhere. And I think that's an important thing. The BioVac is very important. It's a public-private partnership BioVac. We need um, state investment in manufacturing and we need the state to see the importance of investing in R&D, particularly in the medical sector. Uh, we do need to become self-sufficient. We do need to be a global players in, in, in vaccine manufacturing. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity for South Africa. And hopefully we'll seize this opportunity now that we have seen how we are hampered by the lack of ability to manufacture our own vaccines. Yeah. Um, I think it
1: would be worth, a step back and, and just focusing a little bit more on, on yourself, Prop. I mean, you've shown determination to defeat at least one, if not both the COVID-19 and the HIV pandemics in South Africa. Tell us more about your, your work in HIV and specifically any lessons that you have learned um, through your many years in this space that you could apply to the current crisis.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've been involved in, in a, the HIV epidemic for many years. In fact, uh, when the when COVID started, I kind of said to my colleagues, "I'm going to sit this epidemic out. I'm going to uh, write scientific articles and just like, you know, stay at home and and um, learn to garden." Um, however, um, you know, our life changes, and very soon I found myself in the middle of it. And I think the first part of it was um the the need for a research strategy. So when we when the first case of COVID broke out, the DG uh, from the Department of Science and Innovation. Phoned me and said, "Okay, what is our strategy? What's our Easter strategy?" And I was boarding a plane from Durban to Cape Town and opened up my laptop and come um, kind of thought, "Okay, what is our, what is our strategy for for COVID?" And the first thing was the testing. You know, at a global level, there was a mass shortage of, of tests that were available. We had we were going into lockdown. You know, the, our ports our airports were closed, you know, we were hampered by that. So it was very important to invest very early on in testing. Second thing is that we had no idea what the natural history of COVID would be in our country. And so to set up systems to do that. And so you learn from HIV in that same way. In the beginning with, with HIV, we had issues with testing. You know, we went from a laser-based testing in a laboratory with a two-week turnaround to a point of care diagnosis in a, in a rural village. And you know that was innovation. Almost now, to uh, uh, you can do your self testing um, and saliva testing. So there's huge innovation um, in testing, and we, we were able to apply that. Also, with our experience in TB, uh, we used gene experts, and that whole infrastructure um, allowed us to to quickly adapt to COVID testing. And a lot of the the lessons learned in TB, we could rapidly apply. COVID and eventually the national health laboratory service was able to really ramp up and is obviously one of the, the biggest testers in in Africa so that was important obviously my experience with vaccines so I've been um I failed very often with an HIV vaccine and um and so I you know so I've been involved in HIV vaccine work in South Africa um and we at this moment in time we are working on an ad 26 HIV vaccine actually with J&J And the same platform was used for Ebola and for Zika and then was adapted for the SARS-CoV-2. And so given my experience with the the AD26 HIV vaccine, I was in a wonderful position to to be part of the leadership team to evaluate the SARS-CoV-2 AD26 vaccine, which was uh, in a trial called Ensemble 1. And, you know, we were able to lobby to have South Africa be part of the the, the global um, trial, and we were able to lobby for myself to be part of the leadership, which was great because basically that put us in the right position. We got quick experience with the the vector, the vaccine, and we also were able to then rapidly translate. And so obviously HIV um, has gifted this epidemic in many ways. One is in HIV, in vaccine de- design, two is the, the, the clinical trial infrastructure in South Africa that was able to be deployed. So we just basically moved from doing HIV vaccines to doing SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, and um, which was great. So we had staff who knew how to, how you know, we had cold chain storage, backup generators, pharmacists, doctors and nurses who could, you know, rapidly move to roll out a COVID vaccine trial. So we were very fortunate in HIV gifted uh, the country that. And then obviously the laboratories that we have in this country that were able to go from looking at neutralizing HIV and to neutralizing COVID and understanding some of the um, issues around Im- the immunology of, of COVID. our experience with whole genome sequencing enabled us quickly also rapidly to move from HIV to be able to sequence the, the SARS-CoV-2 and to pick up the, the variant that was um, starting to evolve in mid-October. And so, so HIV as an HIV researcher the experience that we that I've gained and that we've gained uh, from regulatory oversight to ethical oversight and to the conduct of, of of trials has has helped us a lot. And so I was quite fortunate to have kind of been in uh, HIV research for all these years and yeah. rapidly um, employed. You know, I made a joke about this. You know, obviously, it's been my lifelong goal to find an yeah. HIV. And it's ironical that I failed so often in an HIV vaccine, and then the first COVID vaccine trial I'm involved in, in, in involved in works. So it's quite yeah. nice to So it's, it's quite nice to have success after so many years of failure. You know, it's quite you know it's a, it's a lovely experience to to have a, to work with a vaccine that works.
1: And that all that work wasn't for nothing. I mean, at at the end yeah. of the day. You've produced results now, and, uh, and I'm sure the the good work in terms of the HIV vaccine will continue. Hopefully, um, Is there anything that's come out of the, the work you've done uh, with HIV and the vaccines that sort of helped you deal with vaccine hesitancy around COVID-19 vaccine in South Africa?
0: Well, I think it's interesting. You know, We never saw any vaccine hesitancy in, in HIV, and maybe people – uh, who, who volunteered to be in an HIV vaccine trial understood their vulnerability. And mm. also because they had been severely affected, their families had been severely affected by HIV, wanted to do something for the future. And a lot of people who volunteer for HIV vaccine trials, they, they're doing it to help the future. They're doing it because their sister died and they want to contribute to science. Um, wow. And they feel a huge calling you know, to, to contribute. So we never really saw that such hesitancy. And I think um, I was really um, happy to see the demand for COVID vaccines in amongst healthcare workers. And maybe they're the easiest, that they're the low-hanging the fruit, in fact, because they understand vaccines. They're in the front line, they're 47 times more likely to get COVID. And so they know that they need a vaccine. And there's a lot of old people and people with comorbidities that also are feeling incredibly vulnerable. And there's so many people that have lost loved ones, friends, colleagues uh, from COVID that this, the, the, it's hard to understand why anyone would be hesitant to take a vaccine um, that has been shown to uh, reduce death and hospitalization and um, to get a little bit of your life back by taking a yeah. vaccine.
1: Prof, uh, taking another step back again about you. I mean, you've got a, a reputation as an activist, a fearless advocate for doing what's right. Looking at your work over the past years, We've always been driven by a clear agenda of getting universal health care to everyone that needs it where does this fierce conviction come from and what inspired you from such a young age to challenge the status quo and start the work that you did
0: well i think you know i grew up in a in a, a big family a family of six we, we went rich and um i guess i always was uh, felt uh, human compassion and empathy for 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 people who who were um less fortunate and uh, suffered more than than ourselves but I think the 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 two advocacy came in I think in two parts one was being a pediatrician and starting your career when there was no HIV and then as you qualify every third child in your ward is HIV infected and dying and young mothers are also dying and having to see um, women give birth and and then uh, find out that they're HIV positive and watch their baby die is is a devastating thing. And we were very lucky, I guess, at that stage, because I was working with an obstetrician and we were following up mothers who were infected and their babies. And at that stage, a a trial called ACTG076 found that AZT could prevent uh, mother-to-child transmission. And so we became involved in these programs and and then I guess when the government didn't want to roll out these programs, uh, this enraged me and a whole lot of other activists and, you know, enhanced um, that work in, in, in advocacy with mother-to-child transmission. But it came before that, because, you know, obviously at um, medical school and as a young doctor, uh, I worked in progressive health organisations, health worker association, and which became the South African Health Workers' Congress. And in those entities, you know, you learned about universal health coverage, we learnt about um, the importance of equality and the unfairness of a segregated apartheid style um, hospital system. And so you know, so I was very lucky because I was exposed early on as a young doctor to progressive ideas, to the UDF and to programmes that, that address the issues around equality and, and segregation in healthcare. And that was a good foundation for the work that I did in mother-to-child transmission and ensure that we had grow I also learned very early on um, how important uh, science is and how important evidence is because we had evidence. When you have evidence, mm-hmm. you know, you can go to the courts because you can prove yeah. that there's an intervention that works. So I quickly realized how critical science is for advocacy and how, how critical science is for activism because you have to have data, you have to have evidence. And only evidence and data changes policy and only evidence and data impacts on life. And so understanding that link and how important science is uh, for changing people's lives uh, is a very powerful tool. So I was very lucky to learn that very early on, you know, that knowledge is power and, you know, power and, and knowledge is king. And you, you use that knowledge to better um, the world. And we use that knowledge for fighting to to get the government to I mean, to to give mother-to-child transmission prevention. And that was all because of science and that we had the evidence to do that.
1: What I have noticed is that you represent this robust scientific community that isn't afraid to express themselves. And I think, you know, the point you raised now around having the facts and the the hard data, uh, which means that some of those conversations are a little bit easier to have because they're based on science, which really then obviously helps. On the point around equality and inclusion, Uh, versus exclusion. The COVID-19 mantra is that the virus will not be contained anywhere in the world unless it's suppressed everywhere. But it seems we're heading towards sort of a two-tiered world where pariah states that have unvaccinated populations are potentially locked off and rich countries close borders. This could obviously massively amplify global inequality. Is this a likely scenario, Prof, or will longer-term thinking prevail?
0: I think in the short term, it's a likely scenario. So really in the short term, um, there's restriction on our movement because of the variant that has emerged in South Africa. You know, so really there's that restriction. Um, and also because of the, the, the lack of, of global supply of vaccines will immediately mean that poor countries um, have less vaccine than, than rich countries, which then will also curtail their movement. And so until we improve the global supply, there will always be this um, this two tiered system in in the world, and so it is true. I do believe that the the, the quicker that at a global level we have vaccine, um, the the better um, it's going to be for the poor countries because we have to be involved in global trade. We have to be able to yeah. move, and and so any restrictions on travel or on on trade is going to impact terribly on poor countries, particularly South Africa, and so we've 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 been devastated. Economically by this um, this pandemic, and uh, we can't have anything that exacerbates it further. And so, it's very important that uh, we address the global demands for a vaccine. And hopefully, um, in the midterm, uh, you know, we will we will be in a situation where uh, we, we will have been able to vaccinate uh, most of our population.
1: Prof, just two closing questions from my side. The first is around your personal experience on the front line of the pandemic. Um, tell us about that experience, and do you have a message for your fellow healthcare workers as they soldier
0: on into 2021? Our healthcare workers um, are the most courageous, hardworking, and um, selfless human beings, and uh, they they went out and they put on their PPE and their masks, and they took care of, of um, sick people, and they did it because that is what they were trained to do. And and so they are incredibly courageous. Uh, you know, around 40,000 healthcare workers have been infected. You know, just under 7,000 have been hospitalised and just over 650 have died taking care of people who were COVID-infected. For them, also, it's been a, a terrible time because they've had to manage um, death and dying and illness in a, in a time where families can't see their loved ones and you're in protective gear, uh, which means that already there's a... A, a distance between you and and your patient you're also in a situation where oxygen runs our uh, supplies are run run down, and you have to uh, choose between this this patient and the next, and sometimes you have to take care of patients in in parking lots in the rain, and so they 've been incredibly courageous and you know I think we need to really acknowledge these, um, these the our foot soldiers who've gone out there. In line of duty, and then done their job. I think that's an important thing uh, for scientists like me. Um, my job, um, you know, is to to try and find solutions so that we can protect those foot soldiers. And so my my job was to find um, a vaccine. I had the uh, the wonderful um, privilege of not only being involved in a vaccine trial that worked, but the privilege of actually translating that vaccine trial into Practice and being able to roll out a program that that got to half a million healthcare workers, you know, there are days that you you, you don't know how you're going to get through the day. I'm just knowing that yesterday, for instance, we vaccinated 12,000 healthcare workers. um We were looking at some of the data yesterday, and we saw the the rates of COVID infections going down in healthcare workers, and you start to think. Jesus, you know, um, this is living proof that a vaccine is working. And just to see those numbers, you know, makes you almost want to to cry with gladness. And so for me, that's the part that's been really enjoyable, is being, being involved in a, an intervention that can can, can transform um, the, the lives of healthcare workers. Obviously, there, there are also other issues with, as of every pandemic, um, there's always going to be political pressures and political um, issues and the balance between political uh, leadership and, and what scientists say. And there's always going to be a tension to yes. um, that. And scientists obviously are, are vocal. They believe in you know, freedom of expression and um, always want their opinions to be heard. And that's always going to be sometimes in conflict with sometimes with, with in a pandemic, You know when there's the Disaster Management Act and you need to have a you know, strong sense of command and control and sometimes the last thing you want are, are outspoken scientists who, who are blabbing on the side. And so you have to find that balance. And, and I think for politicians, they have to, they have to find a way of, of listening and understanding. And for scientists, we have to find a way of advocating that doesn't cause hostility. And so I think we're all learning. We're all, we're all working progress. And yes. I think, you know, we have to learn how to value each other and how to, to work together to, for the better of the country.
1: Thank you. Those are very wise words, Um, and thank you for your service. I think that uh, no doubt you've done a Um, lot—sleepless nights, working for weeks and weeks on end without sleep, convincing uh, warehouses to stay open all night. Um, I do appreciate it, and I'm sure South Africa uh,
0: would echo my sentiments. Um, Thank you. I'm I'm happy. I'm lucky to be part of a a dedicated team, and um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that there's a lot of gifted, talented and hardworking people that work with me. A team that's completely dedicated to to supporting a vaccine um, rollout in the country.
1: And last question, Prof. Um, and this one talks to you a little bit uh, going forward and looking back. I mean, if, if we could go forward a couple of years and uh, we were looking back on where we are now, where do you see South Africa and the world with regards to controlling the virus five years into the future? And, and what lessons do you hope that we would have all learned um, from what we've all gone through at this point.
0: So looking back, I I hope that um, our country would understand the importance of um, surveillance, pandemic surveillance, pandemic readiness, and to make sure that um, we have systems in place to rapidly deploy diagnostics and to optimize surveillance. And so that we become very good at developing the kind of intelligence that you need uh, to pick up a an emerging pathogen and deal with it, so I think that's important. Making sure that our health laboratories and our uh, our systems are in place to to rise to any occasion. The second thing is um, is never to be in a situation where you don't have a manufacturing capability in your country. And then hopefully, if we've learned anything in the last uh, this last pandemic, is that uh, we do need to invest in research and development. We do need to invest in manufacturing. We do need a, a vibrant uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing program in the country. And we still we also need a a a vibrant scientific endeavor. And so what we are very lucky in Africa is that we have the most amazing world class scientists. And um, and making sure that these people are well funded with public funds um, and making sure that they're able to respond like they have done um you in, in in the current pandemic, that they're the ones that identified the variant and they used public money to do that. And so what I had was the hope that at a, at a country level, Treasury, the Department of Science and Innovation and the Department of Health realised the importance of putting um, public money into research. And we, we saw that in the US of Operation Warp Speed and how the importance of federal funds and the role it plays to secure vaccines in the future. So uh, because of the investments that the US government put into vaccines, they have hundreds of millions of vaccines available. And that's because it was the public purse. And so we have to understand that um, to be able to do this kind of thing, we need to make sure that the public purse continues to fund research and not see science or research as a luxury, but a necessity to to improve access to health and wealth.
1: Thank you, Prof. Appreciate it words and appreciate your time today. Um, I know, firsthand you are an extremely busy lady. So thank you. We, we really do appreciate you being with us today to answer some of these questions and to impart some of your advice and knowledge. Thank you for listening to this Investic Focus Talk podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to rate us. And to listen to more of our candid conversations with leaders, innovators, and changemakers, make sure you subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.